live in a world that, more than ever, is ready to burn. Tonight, dual wildfires burning out of control in Arizona. Let's begin with the escalating bushfire emergency in Western Australia. The Amazon rainforest is on fire again. Whole mountains, hills and valleys engulfed in smoke. Wildfires have increased in frequency and severity across the world. We're interested in their connection to this. Yes, cars that belch combustion byproducts warm the planet, which leads to more severe wildfires. But a car's engine is also an example of how we've controlled fire. It's one part of the long and productive relationship humans have had with fire, but now that relationship is changing. The problem is we have too much bad fire, too little good fire, and too much combustion overall. Humans long ago learned to control fire. Now, can we improve how we do that? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, how massive wildfires create their own weather systems, a pilot who flew through a fire-fueled thunderstorm, how hominids first controlled fire, and a Yurik tribal member describes a prescribed burn. This episode is Catching Fire. We're being forced to adjust to the fact that the idea of a distinct fire season is it's gone in some parts of the world. Australia, California are both experiencing wildfires more frequently and on an unprecedented scale. The Amazon and remote parts of the Arctic, which is warming at a rate twice that of the rest of the world, are also shattering wildfire records. Drier conditions driven by climate change have created a world that is a tinderbox. And some megafires are now producing a novel phenomenon, fire clouds, enormous wildfire-generated thunderheads called pyrocumulonimbus. A pyrocumulonimbus is a thunderstorm that's generated by a, a wildfire. It acts as a large chimney funneling smoke upward in the atmosphere. Once considered relatively rare, they've been observed over recent fires in Australia, California, and British Columbia. The 2021 British Columbia fire cause 700,000 lightning strikes, as many as British Columbia normally experiences in a year. The big change in recent years has just been the, the overall scale of some of these piracy bee events. And so we've seen regions that have produced 10 or more piracy bees in just one evening over multiple fires. So the result of this has been, you know, not only some of the most extreme fire weather that we've seen recently, but also some of the biggest impacts in terms of smoke being released at high altitudes, similar to a volcano. Now imagine flying through a pyrocumulonimbus. David Peterson is a meteorologist with the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory who flew through one of these clouds as part of an effort to understand their effects on climate because their smoke columns eject soot into the atmosphere that might circulate around the globe for years. These thunderclouds that look like something Vulcan the god of fire would make are a powerful sign of a hotter, drier world and of our changing relationship to fire. Dr. Peterson tells us why these monster clouds are of interest to scientists. So all thunderstorms are, well, all normal thunderstorms, the ones that you would see in any given day in various places, those are the ones referred to as cumulonimbus. And so the weather community will refer to them as, as CB for short. Now, if you develop a thunderstorm over a wildfire, we stick pyro in front of cumulonimbus, and then we abbreviate it as pyro CB. 
So Dave, if we came across a pyrocumulonimbus, would we know it if we saw it? Uh, you would definitely know it. So a, a pyrocumulonimbus is a thunderstorm. So you can think of it as those really tall, puffy white clouds, except in this case, it's filled with smoke. And so it would have this really dark tinge to it. We refer to pyrocumulonimbus as, as one of the dirtiest storms on Earth, simply because it's filled with smoke and gives that smoky appearance. And it's caused by wildfires. What conditions in a wildfire need to come together to form a pyro-CB? So that's one of the most interesting parts of the, the pyro-CB aspect. It's, you know, the process starts with a wildfire. Usually these are large and intense wildfires. Um, so near the ground, the weather has to be able to sustain that fire. So it's dry, it's hot, it's, it's somewhat windy. So then, you know, how do you get a thunderstorm to develop? Well, the... All storms need a moisture source, and so in the case of a piracy bee, that moisture source is, is well above the ground, so let's say three to five kilometers. And so you end up with this really high cloud base where the thunderstorm process starts. And once it builds over the fire, um, it funnels the smoke up into it, into the updraft of the storm, and accelerates it upward through the cloud. And that's why we use this chimney analogy and it's also why you'll sometimes see piracy bees referred to in an analogy to volcanic eruptions as well. Now, you said that it needs a source of water, but of course, aren't these megafires driven by the lack of water, by extreme drought? Where's the water coming from? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. It, it's a bit of a conundrum. But if you take the western United States, moisture sources typically coming in off the Gulf of California or the Gulf of Mexico, and it's being put, funneled upward in the atmosphere. This is the phenomenon that serves as the southwest monsoon during the summer. And so, of course, sometimes those moisture plumes coming in from the south will be present over areas that have active wildfires. Um, and so that's how you get this above-ground moisture source that the, the fire smoke column can tap into and start the thunderstorm development process. And it can produce lightning storms. In fact, there was an impressive number of lightning strikes with the big fire in British Columbia. I think somewhere around 700,000 lightning strikes in one pyro CB, and that's as many as uh, many lightning strikes as British Columbia gets in a year. That was my understanding. Right. That was back in June of, of 2021, right after that extreme heat wave uh, that many people might remember in the Pacific Northwest. And that piracy bee was actually one of the largest we've ever seen in North America. The anvil cloud from that covered an area roughly the size of the state of Georgia. So it was just one monster piracy bee. And generating lightning is something that we've seen with piracy bees. But like you mentioned, the number of lightning strikes from that case was just spectacular in terms of just total number. Um, there's just so much material for water to condense on, you end up with many, many small ice particles, um, which is different from a, a traditional thunderstorm. And so both traditional and piracy bees produce lightning, but what we don't know yet is just how that change in cloud properties affects the strength and the number of, of lightning strikes that occur in a piracy bee. It is a paradox, isn't it? Because it's a thunderstorm and thunderstorms produce rain, and you would think the rain would then put out the fire, <laughs> but that's not what's happening. No, no, the, the piracy bee is very unique, and so with so much material for water to condense on and these really small cloud droplets, it's, it's hard for, that, for those cloud droplets to build enough size to get large enough to fall to the ground as rain. And so because of that, you know, there's, there's no mitigating effect on the fire. In the end, it really helps to keep the fire going and also 
potentially generate new fires if you have enough lightning in the vicinity. Now, are these of interest to you because they are spectacular and unusual meteorological events, or are they dangerous and concerning in their own right, or is it that they're reflecting what is happening below, which is very dry conditions, a changing climate, and more frequent megafires? So I would say all of the above. Of course, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I, I, the, the first aspect, though, is when a pyrocv develops over the fire, it creates a hazardous environment in that vicinity. So imagine if you're a firefighter and all of a sudden this, you know, 10,000 foot cloud develops on top of a fire, it's, it changes the wind patterns in the region. It can become very erratic, very dangerous for, for firefighters on the ground. But then there's this other angle. And so we know that pyrocvs push smoke upward into the atmosphere similar to a volcanic eruption, and release that at altitudes where it can persist for a long time. And so that raises a whole host of, of scientific questions in terms of just what exactly is the role of the PyroCB in the climate system. You can kind of think of this in terms of a jet aircraft. So a jet aircraft is typically cruising at, let's say, 35,000 feet. Um, but that's still in the level of the atmosphere where the weather occurs. Now, imagine going above that, so let's say we go up to 50 or 60,000 feet, we're in the next level of the atmosphere known as the stratosphere. And so if you take a pyrocebe, and, and some of these really intense pyrocebes will actually push smoke above the, the level that we live in and into that stratospheric layer. And once you put uh, a smoke plume or any sort of plume in that level of the atmosphere, it tends to persist for a very long time. It's very hard to remove particles and, and, and smoke plumes once they're at that altitude. And some of these really big PyroCB events we've seen, such as in Canada 2017 and in Australia and at the, the new year between 2019-20, these plumes have persisted in the stratosphere for up to 10 to 15 months. They've traveled around the world, you know, the plume even covering, let's say, a few latitude bands of an entire hemisphere, which is very similar to, to some of these large volcanic eruptions that you'll see. I understand that a couple of years ago, you flew through a pyro-CB. Now, I don't know what possessed you to do this, but could you describe what it was like to fly through one of these monster fire clouds? Sure. In, in 2019, we were part of a large wildfire field experiment. It was called Fire XAQ, involving members of, of NASA, NOAA, the Naval Research Lab, and, and many others. Um, it's probably the largest group ever assembled to study wildfires and smoke. And so as part of that, um, we wanted to be able to sample the smoke that's being released from the top of a pyrocebe. So during this field experiment, we were forecasting, looking days ahead, and we were able to successfully forecast about three days out that a large wildfire in, in Washington state would produce a pyrocebe. And so we set up a flight on that day to uh, intercept the cloud. And so you can kind of think of it as Basically, we're storm chasing with a large plane. This is the NASA DC-8 Flying Laboratory. It, it does remind me of the tornado chasers. It, it's very similar. And so we headed for the fire and we actually intercepted the plume, let's say maybe 60 or so miles downwind. And so I was in the cockpit at that time helping to guide the flight. And this is the first time that I'm going to actually see this in the real world. So at that altitude, you're looking for this leftover smoke layer that's kind of sitting, you know, at 30 or more thousand feet. And sure enough, it was there. And so the, the pilots were able to follow that back towards the fire. Um, and then we made several intercepts of the pyrocebe cloud itself uh, near the top where it's safe. 
and we were able to get a whole host of, of measurements. It's a very exciting data set uh, for future scientific exploration. Okay, so it's exciting, but was weren't you a little nervous? So with the amount of study we have done with, with piracy bees, we know that if you're up near the upper portions of this, you're not in the part of the updraft that would really damage an aircraft. Um, so that's where the pilot stayed. We, we did not go down um, near the cloud base where upward motion can rival that of a, a thunderstorm producing a large tornado. So we felt fairly safe, but it was still a very surreal experience because as we've mentioned, that these piracy bees have a very dark tinge to them. And so when you fly through the cloud, it's, it's much darker than flying through any other types of clouds. And, you know, going from, you know, basically clear sky to this really dark apocalyptic scene and then back out again, that, that is a bit interesting for sure. Well, then finally, Dave, what are the big questions left about piracy bees? Is there any evidence yet that the pyrocy bee, there's a feedback here and that they may be altering the climate or local weather conditions as that smoke travels around the world? So that's actually hitting on one of the biggest science questions in the community right now. Um, we're actively working to address that. A lot of the remaining questions deal with the impact that uh, pyrocy bee smoke can have. So this is after being injected through that cloud. So. In the stratosphere, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of the, the chemical feedbacks with these plumes. So we've just learned from studies that have come out recently uh, that the pyrocybe smoke can affect ozone. And of course, we all know ozone has an important role in the Earth system, uh, preventing UV radiation from reaching the surface. We also don't really know what to expect in the future. So if the wildfire patterns continue to change and if we continue to see the synergy between certain types of meteorology, might we see more of these piracy bee events in the future? Might we see more like we saw in Australia, these just giant outbreaks of multiple piracy bees? Um, there have been analogies made between those extremely large smoke plumes and, and say, nuclear winter, for instance. It's, it's kind of a real-world proxy. You're putting a lot of smoke at, at high altitudes. And so, so there's still a whole lot we need to learn, but there's also a lot we have learned, and that's why it's continues to be a very exciting and multidisciplinary field of study. Dave Peterson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. David Peterson is a meteorologist with the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. I mean, this whole idea that putting stuff into the atmosphere might lead to a collapse of the, you know, the food chains on Earth, that's nuclear winter. That was hypothesized many decades ago. But hang and on, he did not say that that is what's happening. They still, ha they said that it has been likened to that nuclear winter, but he didn't talk about a collapse of a food chain or that, that this is actually what's happening. No, what he did say was that, in fact, there are analogs between this and the nuclear winter scenarios, but he said they still didn't know whether it was really so like a nuclear winter. He said that's still being studied. And, uh, but that's interesting because, you know, you've, you've got these positive feedback situations where one catastrophe leads to maybe a bigger catastrophe where a forest fire might lead to something, you know, on a global scale. And that was, that was quite interesting. Well, to be clear, I'm going to interject another qualifier here because he didn't say that one catastrophe leads to another catastrophe because they don't know yet what the role is of the smoke in the stratosphere. 
They don't know if it's going to change climate or local weather or whether it will have a positive feedback effect. No, but my only point was that this was raised as a possibility. Yeah, and he said they're still studying it. But that's not what you it. said. I just don't want to make it no, any I more. Said, it's already alarming enough. We don't want to make it any more alarming than it is. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll turn down the alarm bell. I, th- I think that the, the most obvious feedback here, of course, and it's a positive feedback, which often are not good, is that climate change, which leads to uh, drier conditions, lead to the fires. And the fires themselves might lead to these pyrocumulus clouds, which produce more lightning and lead to more fires. So it's not a good situation. Our story of fire isn't just about the climate change-driven wildfires that ravage communities. Humans have had a long history with fire. A fire historian weighs in with a big picture. We've got too many fires that are really doing damage. And we don't have enough fires that are actually doing good. Part of what their good is, is limiting the capacity for uncontrolled wildfires. Beyond that, we've got all this burning of fossil fuels going on, which is part of a continuous story of us as fire manipulators. Next, how all of this first ignited, how humanity first controlled fire, Plus, later in the show, the return of indigenous controlled burns. This episode of Big Picture Science is catching fire. there's a good chance that you might picture the moment when fire was discovered by imagining cave dwellers sitting around rubbing sticks together. But that would be creating fire, which came later. Hominids likely discovered fire after observing the effects of a lightning strike. Perhaps someone then carried a burning branch home. However it happened, the hominid control of fire extends back at least two million years. So Homo erectus apparently could make and maintain fires. The Neanderthal's good, the Denisovan's good, uh, all these characters. Uh, Now there's only one. Keeping the home fires going seems to be a skill exclusive to hominids, as far as we know. I mean, it's an interesting speculation to think other creatures from time to time may have picked up the ability. I mean, why not dinosaurs? I mean, there there are examples of a few raptors in northern Australia that have been seen to pick up burning embers or branches and deposit them elsewhere, well, you know, they're descendant. Maybe there was a velociraptor that could carry fire. That's a really terrible thought, but it's us (laughs) now. I'm Stephen Pine. I'm now an emeritus professor at Arizona State University. I was basically a fire historian and now an urban farmer. He has reframed our geologic history to include humanity's relationship with fire. The Holocene, which we're in now, is the nearly 12,000 years since the last major ice age. The retreat of ice allowed for widespread human migration and the development of agriculture, but a warmer world also made more stuff available to burn. Dr. Pine has coined a geologic term that reflects how human control of fire fundamentally reshaped the world. The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next, is the title of his book. The Pyrocene for me is essentially the Holocene. 
reinterpreted through the prism of humans and fire. And I think what you have is a fire-wielding creature who encounters at the end of the last glaciation a fire-receptive world that is suddenly warming and making all kinds of stuff available. And we have been interacting and changing carbon cycles and everything else ever since. You may not at first consider how we burn fuel in a car, jetliner, or power plant as examples of controlled fire, but they are, and merely different ways we've harnessed hot stuff for our benefit. Our long history with fire has been a quest to find stuff to burn, trees, coal, oil, and engineering devices to keep it burning. In some cases, we've been too successful, creating a runaway situation that's altered our planet's climate. And so Dr. Pine considers our changing climate history as a sub-narrative of fire history. He'd like to see us alter our relationship to what burns, have fewer bad fires and more good ones. I mean, we didn't invent fire. We discovered it. it was out there in nature. And we grew up, the best evidence we have are in places like African savannas, where they have well-developed wet-dry cycles, a lot of dry lightning. They burn. You would have grown up, evolved with fire. We would have seen it. And almost all of our fire practices, slash and burn agriculture, fire hunting, all these others, you can see examples in nature already. So we learned from it and then began to tweak it to our advantage. Nobody knows, I'm sure, but how did the first food get cooked and eaten by a hominid, if you will? Any, any ideas? Oh, I'm sure it was accidental. Someone came upon a burned critter or a chestnut roasted on an open fire, decided it was pretty good. But some imaginative erecting did take it to the next step and carried food to a tamed fire or carried the fire to a carcass. And we got cooking. I'm just thinking here because fires themselves, of course, would have gone back to, well, whenever there was something to burn on the planet. So that's a couple of hundred million years. Well, we've got fossil charcoal that go back to 420 million years. So essentially, as soon as plants colonized lands, they started burning and they've been burning ever since. Now you talk about, and I'm in history mode again here, uh, the shift from biological fuels to lithic fuels. Instead of burning trees, you burned, well, trees that had long ago died and decayed and turned into peat or coal. What was the advantage of using coal? I mean, you just get a hotter fire and a longer lasting one? All of that occurs in what I think of as living landscapes. I mean, we're back to fire being on the planet 420 million years or so, and it co-evolves. There are lots of checks and balances built into the use of fire. You can, you can move it around, you can change it, it's elastic, but it, it still has baffles and barriers in it. You know, there's only so much you can do. But when you start going with what I think of as lithic landscapes, once living, now fossilized, you take that out, all the old ecological checks and balances are gone. I mean, you can burn day and night, winter and summer, wet or dry, it doesn't matter. So that removes all of the old ecological context for fire and humans interacting with the living landscapes through fire. Suddenly that's all gone. And uh, we talk about you know, Prometheus Unchained, when the steam engine comes out, you see Shelley, all these other people starting to talk, new Prometheans. Well, you know, there was a reason Prometheus was chained in the first place. Fire is a pretty powerful <laughs> process. Okay, so so we entered, a, I mean, there was kind of a phase change here, right? I mean, on the one hand, when forests burned, forests burned. But once you start digging up, you know, deposits, lithic, meaning 
well, lithic is just Greek for stone, right? So you're just digging up coal, oil, whatever you're digging up. Now there's no limit to the fire. Nothing is going to stop it because it ran into the edge of the forest or anything like that. That's right. And there's the only limitations on the starting and stopping of these burning of fossil fuels basically is us. I mean, we make it possible and we can stop it. If humans were to disappear overnight, the earth would still have fire all over the place. It would have a different geography, different characteristics, but there would still be fire. But if we go, all of what I think of as this industrial fossil fuel burning goes away. That is, a, that is strictly a creation of us. We're, I mean, we're taking it out of the geologic past, we're releasing it into the geologic future. Yeah. This is pretty wild. Yeah. Many people don't realize that their automobiles are fire machines, right? I mean, it's, it's internal combustion, but it's just fire. That's, that's what's uh, driving them down the, uh, the freeways there. You talk about this in terms of good fires and bad fires, but there, there must be some you know, metric by which you decide, is this a good fire or is that a good fire? That kind of thing. What is it? Bad fires are easy. There are fires that kill people, burn towns, trash ecosystems, unhinged climates. Those are things that, that produce things that are sort of outside the range of experience and adaptability, as we currently understand it. Good fires are the opposite. They promote. They promote habitats. They improve ecological goods and services. They make it easier for humans to live. Can you give an example of a good fire? When I drive by the, the fire station here locally, you know, anything other than no good fires, uh, except the ones in my fireplace, that's it. And those aren't so good. That's part of the problem is that most of us in modern societies live in cities. We don't have any working fires around us. We have no experience with fire in our working worlds. It's all been sublimated into electricity and our cars, whatever. So we don't understand it. But there are many, many examples of ecosystems that will deteriorate without fire in a particular pattern. An easy one is a tall grass prairie. I mean, most of the, the wetter half of the Great Plains and most of the savannas and prairie patches and, and corridors we had in the eastern U.S. were all maintained by fire and almost certainly by humans burning. And you have to burn it every, I don't know, every three years or so. If you don't, the land gets taken over by woody vegetation. Trees take it over. And it's very hard. It's very, then it becomes harder to burn. You've changed the microclimate. The whole system begins changing. The biology changes. And suddenly you've lost it. Well, you've lost all of that characteristic. And we see this over and over again when we put fires out, either by grazing or uh, putting in roads or doing something else. These areas overgrow with trees. Well, there's a pretty good example of a good fire. Getting fire in there at the right time, at the right scale, allows this, this kind of biome to survive. If we remove it, it doesn't. Well, would you call that a wildfire? I mean, what, what's the definition of a wildfire, or is that just a semantic uh, question? Well, that's an interesting question, because the wildfires are usually considered fires that are not under control. So you can have a wildfire in a city, I could have a wildfire in my house, trash basket, <laughs> my dumpster catches fire, whatever. These could all be wildfires. And wildfires are not necessarily bad fires. Severity is not just intensity, it's the ecological effects. Is the canopy of trees completely removed, is, is whatever. Looking at the severity, they're very mixed, which you would expect in fire because it's integrating wind and weather and humidity and terrain and everything else around it. And large fractions of those wildfires are good. The problem is that portions of those fires are also bad. 
they're too severe and they're, they're burning houses. Now, I would personally prefer that we did the burning under controlled conditions, more or less predictable conditions. We get a higher percentage of good fires. Uh, Florida burns about two and a half million acres a year under prescribed conditions. They would like to burn more. It's getting harder, but they would like probably up the frequency of their burns. And we're taking away a lot of our abilities to work with fire. We don't have the space we had, the geographic space. It's becoming harder to have some political space and social space as we move more people out. I think the other big thing is not just the fires that have become a major issue, but the smoke. I mean, we've always had smoke from fires. Much of the country was smoked in or had light haze of smoke for long periods of time, seasonally. You had smoke just as you had pollen in the spring, and it's just something people lived with. And once in a while, there would be large episodes. But we've had these monster smoke palls now, and they're getting into urban areas. And this is a serious public health issue at this point. So the question is, I mean, one side might say, well, just if you eliminate these damn fires, then the smoke goes away. Well, we can't. We can't eliminate them, and we don't want to. We need them. So the issue is whether we're going to have these monster fires and monster smoke palls or whether we're going to start distributing this out in a more controlled way and have lots of little fires and occasional medium, large fire and lots of smoke seasonally. And yeah, it's going to be hard on people who have pulmonary issues in the same way that you know hay fever is hard on people. And you take measures accordingly. Uh, we can do this. But those are the choices we're facing. So it's it's complicated. It's not yeah. beyond our ability to do it. I mean, this is what we do. This is our ecological signature. But it is complicated. It doesn't fit an easy political message. I mean, here's, a, here's an example. And many publicists and others concerned with disseminating messages will say you can't give a mixed message on fire. Good fires and bad fires. People can't sort that out. Well, people seem perfectly capable of distinguishing between a river in flood overflowing its levees and an irrigated field. That's not any different than fire. Steve Pine, thank you very much for speaking with us. Oh, well, thanks for the chance to talk. Fun conversation. <laughs> Stephen Pine is Emeritus Professor at Arizona State University, a fire historian, urban farmer, and the author of the Pyrocene, how we created an age of fire, and what happens next. You know, Steve Pine's description of how humans first cooked food really tickled me. The idea that they would have just come across some animal or plant that had burned, probably in a, in a forest fire set by lightning, and they sampled it, which seems like a kind of daring thing to do, and they liked it. They thought it tasted better. It was easier to chew. Yeah. Uh, most foods we eat are, are cooked now, and, and that, uh, that's had benefits, biological benefits for us. Cooked food tastes nice, and it preserves food, and it um, makes it safer. But the really big thing, the important biological aspect, is that it gives us energy. Richard Wrangham is a biological anthropologist at Harvard University, and he explains how cooking our food led to those biological benefits, namely smaller guts and bigger brains, by giving us more energy. We don't know exactly how much more energy we get out of cooked food than raw food, but it might be as much as 50% of the calories. And this is huge. It's so huge that humans have adapted 
They've dropped the parts of the intestine that are needed to live on raw food, and we now are totally committed to cooked food on a daily basis because it is so valuable that we want to get every possible last bit of energy out of it. Well, okay, so it's a, it's a better energy source. It's maybe like moving from steam engines to incur- internal combustion engines or something. But how did this make us, you know, what we think distinguishes us from our predecessors? I mean, bigger brained, uh, clever, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it does all sorts of things. Uh, it changes our bodies. So our bodies have uh, tiny little mouths, tiny little teeth, relatively small guts compared to the great apes. We're not those sort of big bellied things like gorillas. And that's all because we cook. But even more important from our sort of human perspective is the fact that we have big brains, and those big brains require a lot of fuel. Uh, The brains are are so expensive that they require something like a fifth of our total energy when we're asleep just to fuel our brains. And where does that come from? It turns out that it comes from sparing energy that would otherwise be given to other parts of our body, namely the gut. In primates, The species that have relatively small guts have relatively big brains. We have the smallest guts of any primate. We have the biggest brains of any primate. I I can understand. All right, we have better. We have a better food supply. We get more nutrition, more calories, more more energy input, if you will, because we're eating this cooked food. But I, I don't quite see why that would prompt our brains to get bigger. Maybe we would just uh, get faster, or eat less, or eat less often, or something like that. How, how did our, you know what was the incentive for our brains to get bigger? Yeah, no, that's fair enough. In species that are able to save energy on their guts, it depends on what kind of species they are as to how they use the energy in different directions. So in birds, it might lead them to have bigger flight muscles. In um, some species, um, they might reproduce faster, like pigs. But in primates, group life is so important to them that in all species, there is a tendency for the spared energy to be directed towards using their brains more, and the brains are important because in group life, social competition is really key, and social competition takes smarts. And what was it about cooked food that appealed to them? I'm sure they weren't thinking in terms of metabolism. Was it just the taste? Did the taste somehow guide them in in choosing uh, cooked food, or just the fact that it was easier to eat? Yeah, cooked food is softer, and all animals prefer their food softer if they have the option. Uh, We also know that all animals uh, that we've tested so far prefer their food cooked to raw. And probably this is because we have neurons in our tongues that are specially tuned to the physical characteristics of food. There are neurons for detecting viscosity. There are neurons for detecting grittiness. The overall effect is that it is possible to see what food is going to be good for you. From a chemical point of view, what does it do? Well, cooking does two great things. One is it makes it uh, softer and easier to digest. And the other thing is that it increases the proportion of the nutrients that actually are digestible at all. So if you eat protein, then much of the protein that is eaten raw will go through your body undigested because what heat does is to denature protein, meaning it opens up the protein and exposes the strands of protein to action by the digestive enzymes. But if you eat it raw, then it's uh, kind of wrapped up tightly and less exposed and much more likely to go through your body without being digested at all. Richard Rangham, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to chat to you. Thanks a lot. Richard Rangham is a biological anthropologist at Harvard University.
Next, how indigenous prescribed burns could help curb wildfires. A member of the Yurok tribe describes the importance of good fires. This land evolved with fire. So we need to continue to use the ways that our ancestors used to make our land healthy again, to burn the hillsides in a cycle of re-entry patterns, to burn in the right place at the right time. This episode is Catching Fire on Big Picture Science. So as we've heard, fires had a long and crucial role in human history, and there are now fewer good fires around than at any point in that history. Some helpful fires include those purposely set. For 13,000 years, indigenous people in North America, for example, used prescribed burns to clear brush, activate seeds, and renew ecosystems. But when European colonists arrived, cultural burns were outlawed. Now local fire agencies are looking to these wildfire control methods that indigenous North Americans used for millennia. In some cases, they're working with tribes who have been allowed to bring back the once illegal prescribed burns. My name is Margot Robbins. I am a Yurok tribal member, co-founder and executive director of the Cultural Fire Management Council, as well as co-founder and co-lead of the Indigenous Peoples Burn Network. The Indigenous approach to burning is more about land restoration. We have been taking care of our homelands for thousands and thousands and thousands of years with fire, and nobody knows better than us how to care for our homelands. The Yurok Reservation is in Northern California. Margot describes how her tribe sets small fires, cultural burns, to renew hazel plants, for example. She begins with how she gives her instruction for a prescribed burn. Fire is meant to be part of the ecosystem and that our culture as Yurok people is fire dependent. We must have fire on the land in order to continue our cultural life ways. So the work that they do when they come here to burn with us is much more than just fuel reduction. It is restoration of the land that ensures the continuation of our culture. I wonder if you could help us picture what a lighting ceremony looks like or what happens. Where are you standing or where is anyone standing and how do you light it? And is there a ceremony involved? We start with wormwood and with prayer. That when you are working with fire, you're in a spiritual place. We light our wormwood torches and then the the fire lighters will move out along the top of the unit, the highest point to start lighting fire, while the people that are assigned to hold the fire within the unit move out to stand along the line that's been created around the area that's to be burned. 
a holding line is what keeps the fire in. What is a holding line and, and how does it work to keep the fire in? So the fire line goes completely around the unit that you intend to burn. And you cut all the brush within a 10 foot wide swath. And then you scrape it down to the dirt two feet wide within that swath of cut brush. So what happens when you are burning is that when the fire reaches that part where you have scraped it down to the dirt, fire doesn't burn dirt. So that's where it stops. In the event that a spark goes on to the other side of the fire line, you have water readily available to put that spark instantly out if it has landed and caused a fire outside of the line. Mm -hmm. And how many people are involved? How many tribal members are involved in any one controlled burn? We don't restrict our burning to tribal members. Anybody that wants to come help is welcome. Unfortunately, there are more people that want to help than we're able to accept. We try to keep the number right around 35 people with decades of experience and people who have never been on a fire before. And the other important piece is that you start your fire from the top of the slope and you bring it downhill. It's called a backing fire. And so your line at the top of the burn unit, you start right there, you run a line of fire across that, it backs its way down the hill, and then you drop down maybe 12 or 15 feet, then you run another line of fire across the hillside. And it only burns up to where the previously burned vegetation burned, because then it's all black and it doesn't have any fuel to feed on, so then it goes out. So you're just running strips of fire across the hillside. It goes up, it meets the black, it goes out. It might take four hours to, to bring it all the way down a 20-acre burn, but it is nothing like a wildfire. Nobody's running from these fires. We're there, and we are taking care of it. Mm-hmm. I've seen a picture of you standing in the forest during a prescribed burn, and you were holding a big red canister or a bucket, or what was that? When we burn, our burn units are typically 20 to 30 acres, and a wormwood torch will only just burn for so long, a relatively short period of time. And so once we do the initial fire with the wormwood torch, we use drip torches. And inside the drip torch is a mix of diesel and regular gas. And it drops lines of fire as you pack it across the hillside. So that's what you're seeing in that red canister. That was a drip torch. A drip torch would have been in that canister. That canister is a drip torch. I see, I see. Um, the other thing that struck me by the photo of, of the photos I've seen of you and the other tribal members is that this is physically hard work <laughs> to keep these fires under control or just to be out there setting the fire and, and walking around. Is it, is it physically taxing? It is extremely arduous and um, 
I actually typically only do small burns like around my house. I am not the one carrying fire across the mountain. I leave that for the much younger, much stronger men and women who are just really physically fit. It is hard, tough work. And I'm not all that young anymore. None of us are. Now, the the fire that you describe, such an act as setting that fire uh, would have meant jail about a century ago when these cultural burns were banned. Why were they banned, Margot? They were banned because the government didn't understand the purpose or why someone would purposefully set a fire. They were worried that such fires might burn up their highly regarded stands of trees, which make them rich. And so they banned fire. And this land evolved with fire. So we need to continue to use the ways that our ancestors used to make our land healthy again, to burn the hillsides in a cycle of reentry patterns, to burn in the right place at the right time. And I understand that basket weaving had stopped for a while when the burns were not allowed, but they returned when the good fires <laughs> returned, when the controlled burning returned. What's the connection between the basket weaving and the controlled fires? Well, baskets are at the center of our culture and the base, the frames of those baskets are hazel, which needs fire in order to reproduce. If you don't burn it, the hazel just continues to grow into a bush with many, many limbs, and you can't weave with materials that have limbs on it. Mm-hmm. You need nice, straight, new shoots to use to make a basket. And, and what happens to the forest and to the prairie, the growth to the trees, to the vegetation, if you're not burning? If you don't burn, the vegetation goes unchecked. And so places once open become crowded with brush. You can't walk through it. The prairies become encroached on with fir trees. So the prairies disappear. The native plant species get crowded out by invasive species. Also the the woody Debris on the forest floor builds and builds. So dead trees, dead limbs, fallen leaves, all of those things, instead of being removed by a regular cycle of burning, continue to build up. And when a fire starts, it has unlimited supplies of fuel to feed on. And so that's why we're seeing these huge wildfires that are happening today. Margot Robbins, what a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Molly. It's a pleasure to be here. Margot Robbins is a Yurok tribal member, co-founder and executive director of the Cultural Fire Management Council and co-founder and co-leader of the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network. Well, Seth, this brings us to the big picture, and we've been talking in general terms, but also specifically about 
good fires and bad fires. And and so what are your big picture thoughts on some of the themes in this episode? Well, there's so many different kinds of, you know, if you will, good fires, most of them taking place inside a cylinder somewhere. So, you know, or, 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 or boiling water to produce steam, which produces electricity. I mean, you can't say that that's a bad fire. You may not like what we do with the electricity, or maybe we use it in ways we shouldn't be using it because of considerations of the environment. But on the other hand, the fact that you can heat your house, the fact that you've got electric light and all that sort of thing, that's because of fires too. Also, transport's dependent on fire. So in that sense, there's a lot of, if you will, good fire going on. Bad fires, of course, are increasing. These are the wildfires that have been produced in increasing frequency and severity due to climate change. But one of the things we discussed here, Seth, was bringing back good fires. Yeah, no, the, the idea that uh, Smokey might have been giving uh, maybe not such great advice when he said you can prevent forest fires and only you can prevent forest fires. And, you know, what we've heard here is that, well, not all forest fires are actually bad, right? That's something interesting uh, because, you know, most people may not have thought about that, the fact that they clear out the forest, as uh, Miss Robbins said, you know, so that the animals can get into the forest and so forth and so on, clearing the underbrush so you don't get a worse fire. For some species, fire is key for renewal. Yes, certain plant species, for sure. You know, for example, when a conifer drops these pine cones, right, the fires will sort of blow apart the pine cones, and then, the, you know, the individual seeds spread around, and, you you know, you get more trees. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty essential. Uh, another function of the fires that I had not really given any thought to. This show would not be possible without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that is engaged in exploration of the cosmos. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Big Picture Science has original music by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of the program that considers humanity's evolving relationship with fire is called Catching Fire.